The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. As we continue in our series that we've been doing this fall through 2 Corinthians, there's been a little bit of this waiting game that, that has been happening between uh, the writer of this letter, the Apostle Paul, and, and his, a group of friends, this community uh, at this church in this city called, called Corinth, where, where some of the things that they have disagreed over are coming to the front. And, and so what we come to tonight is a place where it's kind of like Paul at some point said, hey, you first, second, and third Corinthians. Now, those of you who are Bible scholars or familiar with the Bible are kind of going, I didn't know there's a third Corinthians. That's because there's not. I just made that up. I can picture Paul saying, come on, first, second, and third Corinthians. And that's where we kind of come to uh, tonight. What we're talking about as we get to this as we engage with Paul and this church at Corinth tonight, is this word repentance. And my guess is that even as I say that word, there's probably some some people that are going, oh man, that's such a religious word. That's such a a bad word. And to the degree that you might be sitting there thinking that or just going, yeah, what does that word really mean? That's what I hope that we might be able to unpack and and come to a little bit of a better understanding tonight, because I believe that repentance is one of these key actions in us who are seeking to follow Jesus with our lives. Uh, It's not just something that we hear on the street corners, this call to repent. It's actually something that's really important for us to do. So let's see if we might uh, get a better understanding of this word and this idea tonight, because it's a little bit confusing. Maybe we should pray as we get started. God, we came tonight because we want to know you more. We want to, we want to, uh, we want to learn. Uh, we want to learn from each other. We want to learn from your word. So would you, would you open our hearts and our minds that we would receive tonight, whatever it is that you want to give us, that you would uh, impact us, that you would bless us uh, with your word, uh, that we might know you more uh, tonight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, again, uh, if, if Paul has kind of said 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Corinthians, one of the things that I love about the Bible is that it, it really gives us a picture of what real relationship is like. And the only contextual note that I want you to remember tonight is that Paul had a relationship with this group of people in Corinth, with this community that ultimately he loved. But it's really important to know that in the Bible, it's not like they saw eye to eye all the time. They had disagreements. There was tension and there was conflict. And people got hurt in in the midst of that. Uh, There was confusion. And so that sets a little bit of the context uh, as we come to what we're going to read tonight in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning at the fifth verse. It begins uh, by saying this, when we arrived in Macedonia, we, that's Paul and Titus, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. 
Conflicts on the outside, fears within. Okay, now I have to stop here for a short note. And usually when I do this, it's to help you understand the text. But what I want to stop and note right here is actually going to help you understand your context a little bit more. All right, what am I talking about? How many of you know the, the fight song of the University of Washington? Okay, okay so there's some people who know it, okay? Um, the second verse, if you know it, feel free to sing along with me. It's actually, if you, if you think about it, the second verse of Bow Down to Washington is actually a bit of a prayer, okay? It starts out this, heaven help the foes of Washington. They're trembling at the feet of mighty Washington. The boys are there with bells. They're fighting blood excels. It's harder to push them over the line than past the Dardanelles. Stop, okay? Now, if you're anything like me, as I learned the UW fight song, I was like, Dardanelles? Really? Is that the best we can do is something to rhyme with bells? Okay, now, Here's what I want to point out. In this stanza that started, Heaven Help the Foes of Washington, what Paul and his companions have just experienced is going from a city uh, down south called Troas, and they had to pass through the Dardanelles to get to Macedonia. And see what it says there? There was no rest for us. We faced conflict from every direction with battles outside and fear inside. The Dardanelles were a rough place to go through. So now you know, when you sing that song, when you're at Husky football games, uh, you can sing it. How benevolent is it that our fight song is actually a prayer for our enemies? Jesus says, hey, you know, pray for those who persecute you. Okay, as Huskies, we take that seriously. Okay, a bit of a stretch. Let's continue. But God, who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, for your deep sorrow, for your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Uh, If you've been here throughout the quarter, you knew that Paul's itinerary changed a whole bunch. And so uh, they're trying to come back together to sort out their differences. And now Titus brings a report to Paul about what's going on in Corinth. And here's the report. Even if I cause you, the community at Corinth, sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Hmm. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so you were not harmed in any way. This is key right here, verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. We'll return to that a little bit later. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. Okay, now he's saying there's something good that happened. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation or passion. What alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted you are 
and this is really important when we talk about repentance, this last verse 13. By all this, we are encouraged. Repentance as encouragement. Repentance is encouragement. Keep that in mind as we talk, because repentance is one of those words that, is, as many of us in this room know, can have a very negative connotation to this. And the in-speaking team reminded me of this and helped me, helped me understand that often when we hear this word, we attach it to an idea or a feeling of condemnation. That if there is to be something such as repentance, it means that you are condemned, that there's a type of judgment that's there. And then, of course, there are those experiences that we have with those, with those evangelists that, that lift their voices and, and yell at people on campus or, or downtown. And so much of their, their message, broadly speaking, is a proclamation of a, of a broad judgment and then to repent. Repent. I remember when I was a student, there was a guy that would stand right down by what's now Packar on the corner. And as people would walk by, you know, at points he would be silent and then he would just, he would just turn and go, fornicator! And then, you know, repent! And it was scary, right? You know, and of course, you know, when he'd do that, he'd be like, me, me? You know? But we've had those experiences, right? Where you see those people down at Westlake Center in downtown Seattle and you go, is it doing any good? Because they're kind of irritating. At least that's the way that I feel about it. And that isn't to say that God wouldn't call those people to do something really good and that they don't feel called by God. But there are times that I really struggle with that. That there is no relationship in that moment. And, and it, it sometimes feel like, feels like it, it gives the faith that, that I know kind of the wrong feel, the wrong identity. I struggle with it. Maybe because of the overuse of this word repentance or because it's just bad experiences we've had, we resist it. But here's the thing. When we talk about repentance, Paul made this distinction between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is a sorrow that quickly um, turns into a guilt that then turns into shame. Okay, now guilt doesn't always have to be bad. Shame is bad. I know in my life it plays out a bit like this. That, uh, you know, I'm, I'm well-intentioned. You know, my wife or a, a friend, a coworker will come and, and ask me to do something, ask me to help them out with something. And hey, I'm, I'm a servant. You know, I'm here to make your life better. I'm Christ-like, let's go. Okay, so I'm, I'm into it. And as quickly as I agree to it, I fail to write it down and in fact then forget to deliver on what I promised. Well, often something like that will turn into, gosh, man, I, what's my deal? How did I, how did I mess it up as, as a husband, as a coworker? And man, I'm, how could I be so absent-minded as to not remember how to do that? Man, I suck. Now, it seems like a trite example, but honestly, there can be moments where a simple brain fart for me turns into this shame spiral, where what shame is, is when we, when we be, begin taking something that we, a mistake we made or something we feel guilty about, and then begin judging ourselves, making a moral judgment about ourselves that puts us in a place of going, you stink. 
And often it can be a very difficult place to get out of because shame can beget more shame. And I can't totally put my finger on what it is in our culture that, that makes us do this. But when I think about this cycle, this shaming judgment, this worldly sorrow, what's one thing that I can put my finger on? Is that it's all about me. It's all about my mistake. It's all about what I failed on. It's all about how I feel about myself. Shame almost always has everything to do about me. You see, when Jesus calls for repentance at the beginning of the gospel of Mark, Jesus calls for repentance and says, repent. He doesn't say repent because you suck. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is near. You see, repentance in the way that Jesus presents it is an invitation to look at something other than yourself. Repentance is the opportunity to turn and see something other than yourself, and in fact, to see that the kingdom of God is near, regardless about how you feel about you, how you feel about your sin, how you feel about God in any given moment. The invitation is repent for the kingdom of God is near. Worldly sorrow gets us focused on ourselves. Godly sorrow, on the other hand, produces a guilt that is good, that gets you looking beyond yourself, that gets one wondering how things might be made right. Remember what it said in, in what we read. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, earnestness, eagerness, passion, alarm, longing, concern, and a readiness to see justice done. A great description of what repentance, a good repentance looks like an earnest seeking of God in all things. Repentance that is able to free us from shame does what? It gets us focused on something besides ourselves. Now, when we live in the world that we do, in the culture that we do, we have to navigate this tension of living in this culture that says, Really, it's about your future. It's about your career. It's about your stuff. So much of, of what our culture presents is forcing us to look at ourselves. And what repentance does is allows us to turn and see something other than ourselves, to see the world through new lenses and new eyes in the way that we talked about last week. Which leads me to this. What's the perception that you have of a successful Christian? The follower of Christ that just seems to get it right. What's your perception? Too often we've developed a perception as ones who follow Christ as, as kind of having it all figured out. They never have to struggle or be sad or disappointed this idea that the successful Christian is one who has all the right disciplines and is kind of a goody two-shoes. I want to offer that faithful followers of Christ are not necessarily people who have it all down, 
but rather people who live lives of repentance. It's people who are familiar with sorrow, with this sorrow, this godly sorrow that leads to repentance, that look for ways to be restored. Lives that are constantly turning to reorient themselves towards God. Um, for those of you that have been participating in the, the Inns Bible Challenge, hey, good for you. Keep going because you're halfway done. You're about halfway done if you keep doing your readings this week. And you are coming on to reading about uh, one of the, the most famous guys in the Old Testament, a guy named David, who was described as a man after God's own heart and yet caught, found himself caught in all sorts of sins of the flesh. The most notable one is an incident around adultery. And yet this is a person that is described as a man after God's own heart. David is an Old Testament example of somebody who lived not a life that was perfect, but a life of repentance. I believe it was David's repentance, his laments that you read about in the Psalms, that are really why the New Testament describes him in the book of Acts as a man after God's own heart. So what does this look like for us? Oh, and by the way, in Bible Challenge, even if you didn't start a few weeks ago, it's never too late to start. You can start right now and, and keep going. We, of course, have the inbiblechallenge.com and these analog guides that you can pick up on the welcome table. Be sure to do that. All right, repentance. What's it mean for us? It means that we, well, are you ready for it? We need to repent, okay? Yes, this should have a duh factor to it, okay? What is repentance? That's what I wanna talk about right here. What is repentance? Literally, this word means to turn. To repent means to turn. When I work uh, with couples in, in, in premarital, there's a book that, that I require every couple to read, a book from a guy named John Gottman, who's a... Uh, a professor here on campus, a, a social um, uh, psychologist, that he runs the Love Lab on the University of Washington campus. And perhaps you've heard of this guy. He is, is this guy that, that over the course of his work, he has observed thousands and thousands of married couples. So much so that he is allegedly, after about 10 minutes of observation, able to predict better than 90% if a couple will be married happily five years later, okay? And the couples that he meets with are couples that are coming in for a type of counseling that he then observes in a, in a controlled environment, okay? Well, in Gottman's writing, in, in, in his study, there is a very key paradigm that he says one of the, the most clear markers of, of a couple and their ability to, to be together is if in moments of conflict, in moments of disagreement, they turn toward or they turn against. Okay, that he says that anytime there is tension, there is a type of turning that happens. Either a turn against, okay, another word for that might be an anger that turns to contempt, or there is a turn toward. There's a movement to come together a movement 
to reconcile. Turning toward each other means finding a common ground. Friends, we can repent because in Jesus Christ, God has said, I have turned toward you. I've turned towards you. I've not turned against you. I've turned toward you. In repentance, we have the opportunity to turn back toward God. So a repentance is to turn. As we think about the things that, uh, that have caused us guilt, perhaps have caused us even a bit of shame. Okay, are we going to turn back towards God or are we going to turn in such a way that we continue to walk down a path of shame? Second is this. As a teenager... The second is this, we need to make room for repentance and for others to repent as well. Repentance is not only about us, it's about those people in our lives and their ability to repent. My best friend in high school was a guy that would have been the self-proclaimed chief of all sinners of our high school. Uh, the wor- I, I remember the worst thing that he would have said happened in his life up to that point was a girl that he was dating at the time went to a Young Life camp over the summer and, and came back and, and was excited about a, a new relationship with Jesus. And, and the worst thing that could have possibly happened was somebody getting religious on you. And there was a, it was... Uh, something that he prided himself on, actually not being religious, and, and I would say even to, to some degree persecuting Christians. Well, as I came to school and grew in my faith and prayed for this guy um, and, and got to a point where, where I got engaged, and as I was thinking about the groomsmen that would stand up with me in my wedding, I wanted to select guys that I knew would pray for me and Julie in moments when we would... Uh, come upon hardship. And that required that, that, you know, kind of an identifiable faith on my part to these people. Well, one day I was actually driving right down the street, right behind, um, right here on 16th, right behind the inn. My phone rings and it's this guy's name on my screen. And as I pick it up, he says, church, I know you've been praying for me and I just want to tell you that I gave my life to Jesus. Much to my surprise, and it's true, I had been praying for that guy almost daily for years. But honestly, I, I wasn't sure how genuine it was. Um, and the good news is I did ask, it, on the spot, in that phone call, I said, dude, will you be in my wedding? Because uh, I was so stoked that he could stand up there with me. But I was anxious to see if it was gonna stick. That dude today is a pastor. Okay, went from the chief of all sinners to being a pastor and a much better one than I am. It was a surprise. It's an example of what it means to make room for others to repent, to allow ourselves to be surprised by the gospel that keeps inviting us and the people around us back over and over again. Finally, we need to realize that repentance is hard. The circumstances that we find ourselves in are hard. To make a change, to make a turn toward is a difficult thing. To let go of our shame, to let go of old habits is a difficult thing. 
the image I want to give you tonight is that as we turn, turn, as we make our turn, will it be a turn with our hands closed? Will it be a turn that we make with fists that says you, that there is nothing that you have to offer me? There's no change that you can make. You can't give me anything. You can't force anything into my hands. You can't give me anything. You can turn like that with defensiveness, with anger, and nothing will happen. You can turn with closed fists and nothing will happen. That's turning against, turning in such a way that you're ready for a fight. Or I want to offer that you could turn with hands open. You could turn toward. Often this is a turning that begins with something that, that instead of defensiveness, it might sound like an apology. You know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And on the one hand, when we, when we turn with hands open, it is an opportunity to let go of a past that we're not proud of, of shame that we feel about decisions that we've made or maybe decisions we haven't made. It's an opportunity to receive and to receive the grace of God. This table is a reminder. It's a symbol that Jesus first turned to us with open hands. And the invitation is that no matter what's going on in your life, what has happened, what is currently going on, that you can come to this table with open hands, no matter how far away you may feel. The invitation is for you. The invitation is for you to let go of shame and to receive encouragement that comes from repentance. For it was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he broke bread and he gave it for his friends to eat. And he said, this is my body. And in the same way after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death and life until he comes again. Let me pray. God, for your turn toward us that invites us to turn toward you, uh, we thank you. And so, uh, God, we pray that as, as we join in this meal, uh, that we might know as we break off a piece of bread, uh, as we drink from this cup, that, that uh, your grace is real and sufficient for us. Uh, so God, meet us in this place as we come to this table. Amen.